like look at these. No, I feel so good. Yeah, so she was like, Chris, and you're like, oh, what did you do? Yeah, we're trying to find a little bit, but I got a cooler. I can't see Chelsea in the background. It's not the latest. She special ordered that ahead of time. This latitude And so um, Hannah's going to start us off with a morbidity. And uh, the other three interns are actually on nights. So their seniors are going to present for them, but they still prepare to keep. <laughs> yeah, three of them. Two are switching today on PEDS. That's how it Okay, so without further ado, guys, if we could give Hannah our full attention. Thank you. Yeah. I'm doing a morbidity out of August FMIS. But before we do that, or scripture, it's out of John 7. Jesus said, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Now, Jesus is obviously speaking about this spiritually, and we obviously want these things for our patient to have a river of living water flowing from their heart. We don't want it to happen physically. And we will talk about this shortly for a patient who has ESRD and can potentially have heart failure because of potential morbidity. So, 
looking at our agenda, we'll go over patient background, admission timeline, potential um, things that happened while the patient was admitted, analyzing our clinical decision making. Patient, our only patient, she came in with right sided weakness to an outside ED. On our admission, she was diagnosed with a TIA, and this was complicated by the fact that she received IVF treatment while she was being admitted um, in a prior diagnosis of ESRD with concomitant hyponatremia and volume overload. So more extensive background on this particular patient. She's a 50-year-old female. She had acute right upper and right lower extremity weakness for several hours, spontaneously resolved during her transfer from Stillwater ER to St. John. And she missed her HD prior to admission. Past medical history already discussed ESRD, already discussed Congestive heart failure, um, C, COPD, HLD, hypertension, type 2 diabetes with neuropathy, through depression, constipation, and chronic pain. And on multiple home to treat with SRD, on Pravastatin for HLD. Based on her labs obtained in the Stillwater ED, she was hyponatremic at 130 and elevated BUN and creatinine and a low GFR, which were about her baseline and had a BUN creatinine ratio of 7.1. Looking at her imaging, she had um, no abnormalities seen on MR brain, so no concern for an acute ischemia or an acute stroke or mass, and MRA of the neck and head were both unreported. So looking at how we provided care for her, the patient was Experiencing her right-sided weakness presented to Stillwater ED, she had hypotension at the time with a BP of 74 over 45, and she received IVF resuscitation in the ED. Based on the HMP that we have in our system, um, the amount was not um, She then was transferred to us, was admitted to her floor at 3 o'clock in the morning, and at that time, her right-sided weakness had resolved. IVF was ordered at 6.40, and this was included in an ischemic stroke admission order set, and this was about 40 mils an hour, and this is a baseline part of the order set. This was not based on her, um, uh, not, wasn't based on um, any personal factors to the patient. Um, nephro was then consulted upon her admission, and nephro had received these um, IVF based on the hyponatremia and volume overload they were concerned by. And this happened at 9.30. So looking at what the potential morbidity, um, patient received 40 mLs an hour 
of IVF starting at 626 when she was um, when all of her admission orders had gone through. This was in the setting of ESRD with normal tension as her hypotension had resolved. She had hyponatremia on labs in the still water and she had previously missed HD prior to admission. So symptoms had changed during that transition from still water ED where there was a concern for an acute stroke. And as she was transferred to our facility, her symptoms had resolved. So the provisional diagnosis of acute ischemic stroke had been changed to TIA during the transition, but that admit order set is not reflective of that change. And we'll discuss later how TIA and ischemic strokes are treated differently. Um, the IVF was not documented in the HNP, nor was it shared during handoffs. So day team was unaware that IVF was running um, until we had received a note from Nephro following. And um, based on the day team's decision-making, they had not uh, checked the mark prior to um, starting the day um, with that overnight admission. So it was the expectation that the, um, the overnight physicians had taken care of this and we were gonna move on with the rest of the follow-up. And then Nephro had discontinued those um, fluids later on in the day. So our baseline uh, fishbone analysis and looking at it more specifically for our patient. So particularly the patient was a poor historian given her lethargy. So she couldn't communicate to us her specific concerns and that could have clouded the picture. Um, she had recently missed HD as we had discussed, and she had also received IVF um, while at the Stillwater ED. An environmental difficulty was that this was an overnight admission, and there's a lot going on overnight, as well as um, during tr uh, direct transfers from a different facility. Looking at uh, potential protocol issues, um, when patients are admitted, um, especially when we're using a preset given by Cerner, going through and ensuring each item that's being ordered fits with the provisional diagnosis and comorbidities of the patient. And then looking at the organization, there, there may needed to have been better communication between the night and the day teams. And all of these um, failures in um, how the system and the environment were laid out it led to a poor outcome with um, IVF given in volume overload. So looking at um, some potential changes to our practice based on the literature, PIA and ischemic strokes, I hope that we all know the differences between the two, but just a brief overview. is transient ischemic change to the CNS, but there's no evidence of infarction, whether especially on imaging. There's no evidence of tissue damage. Um, there was some debate on a very specific diagnosis. Previously, it was based on um, symptoms lasting less than 24 hours. More updated literature is saying that it's more specifically no evidence of tissue damage, whereas an ischemic stroke has those symptoms that are longer lasting, and there's evidence of damage on imaging, and those um, deficits are longer lasting. 
more likely days rather than multiple hours seen in TIA. And generally, the difference between treatments is that TIA doesn't receive IVF baseline recommendation. Usually, uh, all fall baseline uh, treatments for TIA include aspirin. Um, it's either two baby doses up to 325 daily. And if a patient has um, a higher ABCD score that is greater than four, then they'll receive dual therapy, including uh, Plavix 300, 300 to 600 as a loading dose and then moving to for a period of time. Ischemic strokes, on the other hand, do um, receive IVF without dextrose specifically if a patient is volume depleted, which most patients tend to be. Um, they'll also receive aspirin and acute um, thrombolysis if the symptom onset is less than four and a half hours. They'll um, receive a high dose statin and then any type of complication prevention, like uh, watching for changes in breathing, having the head laid up at a certain angle, those types of things. And then looking at ESRD on HD specifically, um, cardiac morbidity and mortality is directly associated with HD scheduling. So 25 to 40% higher risk of cardiac um, MIs or um, AFib um, exacerbations or acute volume overload that worsens um, CHF on the first day of HD compared to any other day. And most of those causes are related to volume overload as well as hyponatremia. And so the volume and sodium accumulation based on the, uh, the understanding that you're going multiple days without having blood filtration, uh, that is a baseline concern of having both volume and sodium uh, be at higher levels multiple days after HD, especially with that three-day interval going over the weekend as with this patient. Um, so uh, volume overload is also the number one cause of hypertension, which can be an independent cause for poor outcomes with our patients with cardiac as well as ESRD diagnoses. So main treatment for volume overload and ESRD is to um, dialyze them. More specific looks at um, how to dialyze patients to prevent volume overload and sodium overload over the course of the weekend is to have longer sessions and more frequent HD schedules during the week. So doing Q4 rather than Q3, and then um, using or programming the dialyzing machine to allow um, less sodium to be returned into the patient's body. And then also including a uh, sodium restricted diet. So main recommendations for us is to logistically check the MAR every time that we are assuming care of the patient from the night team or we're coming on to FMIS onto a new month, making sure we know exactly what the patient's getting, what they're getting it, looking at PRN meds, making sure we have fluids, um, especially in a patient who um, has very high risks for volume overload. Um, and then when we're consulting specialists, so um, checking the MAR, to make sure that any of our specialists changing things that we had ordered, like when Nephro DC, the IVF added on, um, 
checking and making sure each part of an order set is necessary based on what the patient may need. We sign off on everything. And then documenting um, all treatments, especially IVF and um, a drug that's being added to the patient and, um, in our HMPs and in our progress notes under either the specific problem that it's treating or in an FBN section. Treatment for TIAs, as we discussed, um, will include aspirin, either a small dose or all the way up to a 325 each day at baseline. If you have a higher risk TIA patient, then you will add on um, Plavix as a loading dose and then transition to uh, the 75 milligrams QD after that. And there's no IVF that's needed specifically for TIA. And for ESRD treatment, as soon as a patient comes in, as, as was done with this particular patient, we consult nephro to get them back on an HD schedule that's appropriate for them. And if they've missed HD, getting them back on as soon as possible. And then trying to avoid volume overload, reevaluating if the patient had received extra volume at a previous facility and if we need to dialyze them off more and blocking to see if the patient is volume overloaded and has sodium derangements on baseline because that's something we need to watch for even if a patient seems well on regular. So looking specifically in Cerner, this is what the order set looks like. Um, I shrunk down all the admission vitals, all those orders. So right here in the middle, um, it has um, the specific type of fluid you can get without dextrose, specifically for um, an ischemic stroke. And then um, unclicking right here, that 40 mils an hour that is um, logged in and is um, recommended for treatment of So if you like, I can share my references with you at a later time. And thank you. How long was the IVF running for? IVF was running for about three hours. So in terms of a long period of time to negatively affect the patient, I don't think that that volume the patient received would have significant negative effects on her during that admission. I think the it's more the it's like a, a near miss rather than a true morbidity. Blood pressure was she was normotensive. I think she was she was not remember the exact number off the top of my head. I don't believe she had soft pressures, and I don't believe she was hypertensive. I think she was right in that sweet spot around one twenty. Just in general, like whenever the seniors and stuff are reviewing the chart, look at that one every single day. Mm -hmm. Like I said, this is only run for a few hours. Whenever I take over patients from the hospital that Thursday, like one of, the, one of the things I look through is the MAR to see what meds are on, and you will be shocked. It's not documented, but it's running for mm -hmm. a reason. And it includes at the very bottom, it's like fluids and stuff. So, whenever you guys are checking out, I'm on my ass. Like, I'm looking at that MAR every time to see if there's anything that needs to be stopped. Really good habit. Thank you very much.
mean, they probably can just put in their note in big bold letters like, do not do this. <laughs> Once you discontinue doing it. After midnight, sorry, I don't know if it's okay. Yeah, really go see, or the intern didn't really go see them. Or they didn't. No, the, the intern did go see the patient that morning, and uh, the intern had missed uh, reading the more as well. Uh, intern wasn't aware that I had started and uh, was more concerned with the patient's lethargy and other concerns, didn't notice that there was a there kind of was like a Swiss cheese. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, Dr. Hildebrand had said, like, when we check our patients in the morning, we should always check all the lines that are to see, like, what are, what's running and, like, what rate is it running? Because half the time it's running at a rate that we didn't even order. Um, so, um, the concern for volume overload of the patient. Because it was in nephrology's note, they specifically said patient is volume overloaded. Not give patients that are volume. Based on the intern's evaluation, patient had lower extremity edema on the right side. Um, there weren't any crackles heard. I don't think that uh, yeah, the intern wasn't aware of any type of JVD lines. Um, <coughs> the MRI already done. Like, was that the results at the outside facility, or was that? I think the. I'm not exactly sure. All right, thank you so much. heart failure patient to discuss. Um, so first off, we have a patient whose chief complaint is shortness of breath. Um, the admission diagnosis is concerned for like an anginal equivalent for the else, like a MI, and then the complication for this patient was like delaying here. Um, so let's give a background. So this patient is our walking clinic. So he came in five days of worsening shortness of breath. Very active. But now she can't even walk a block without having to um, dyspnea. Um, and then he has a history of diabetes and hypertension, past surgical history, and he's just on um, a low dose of glipizide and um, So if his workout is shortness of breath, motion, go ahead and did a chest x ray. Um, so this is the chest x-ray finding. On the right, we have the walk-in clinic, and then we've got 2017, the last one. So you can tell uh, that the, um, the readings show that there's bilateral increase. There's a lower airspace opacity, just, yeah, you can all see it. So 
definitely got some for interstitial edema. Had JVD to the mid minute and also had a BS3. Um, the plan um, was to draw labs. Um, labs that were gotten were the Coleman, a BMP, you can see there, and then a referral was sent for an EKG. I see that it was ordered in our clinic, so I'm, I'm not sure. It says that it was a referral out, um, but I'm pretty sure it was done here in the clinic, and this is what it shows. Um, uh, as you can see, it was for the sinus treatment, the prolonged PR, there's interventricular conduction delay, and then um, concern about a lateral MI. The most like prominent key wave. Um, and again, this was all done in the walk-in clinic. Um, patient was sent home um, that night at 23:30. Um, one call physician gets a call about the lab results. And that was a point zero point zero nine. Um, patient was called. Um, Really think this is serious. like he was concerned with something serious, and he was like, "This is a joke, this is a prank." That he would need to come in to be evaluated. At no point during this testing, shortness of breath, on exertion, and these kinds of signs. All right, um, and so yeah, goes into the ER. This is the on hospital day one, so it's about 45, 12:45 at night. Um, this is what they saw. So uh, they was it was read as an so he was diagnosed with an end stimmy and presented um, to him for admission. So yeah, he's um, no chest pressure, but he does have some jaw pain, does have the proximal um, PMB, um, and then he was given ID Lasix, which he had not been given, and then cardiology consult to Opponents did bump just a little bit and then came back down by the went ahead and had an echo. Uh, this was at 10 o'clock. Um, EF was 20%. Uh, previously healthy guy, which is cardiology saw him and they decided to take him for a cat day. Uh, and so even though he doesn't, he's never had that. Uh, they did put him on medications. Um, and anyway, so this is what the cat show has 20 years of the cardiologist did did not um, did not stent this patient just because I think there's like diffuse disease and also um, there's a note that it's out of proportion to the cardiomyopathy and the um, the symptoms that they were so it was a you know, they didn't have symptoms. So what happened? So the um, uh, kind of the, I guess the myth that we're talking about here is the delaying of emergency care, um, given the symptoms that they were presenting with. Um, so what are some elements that went into this? And so for the patient, so the biggest thing is really the atypical presentation of this. And we'll go into like, we'll go into that in a little bit of detail, but also the procedure. So like diagnosing CHF is really like a clinical thing. And so waiting for an echo was something that was done in this case to diagnose it and to treat it, which may not for equipment wise, like we don't have a staff troponin, we can't get those things for you. And, um, environment, it was walk-in clinic, medication, so no medications were sent, and then um, not like really recognizing maybe that there's a life-threatening illness that could exist. 
let's talk about some literature review. So first let's talk about diagnosing CHF. Um, and this, the things that are marked are the symptoms that he had. So you need at least two major criteria. So pulmonary edema, which actually he had that as well, cardiomegaly, fatter jugular reflex. He had the JVD, the PND, and the third heart sound. Minor criteria, so dyspnea, which he had, and then Definitely um, a criteria for our patient, but this is just in general for you to kind of remind yourself of what And then evaluation. So initial evaluation, like we definitely was followed. So the history, the physical exam, chest x-ray, EKG, and then uh, looking at the criteria which they meet, and then getting an echo is kind of where you're headed. So causes of heart failure. So we really need to remember that one of the main causes of like nuance that heart failure is going to be um, like a disease and even an MI. Um, hypertension can also be a cause. I do have a cardiomyopathy and valvular heart disease, but um, yeah, just keeping that very high suspicion in our minds when we the patient, especially who previously fell until sudden onset shortness of breath, um, having an and then this I found really interesting. Um, up to one third of patients with confirmed MI had no chest pain. Um, so we really need to you know, dyspnea on exertion is kind of like uh, um, So dyspnea alone can be simply the cause. And then I thought this was interesting as well. In the ER, um, anyone coming in with shortness of breath who's 50 years old, like they're instantly, they get the EKG. That's why they get the EKG on almost everybody. But like they have criteria and it's like because they're concerned about the. All right, so, um, and then according to the source, so patients with acute heart failure do require urgent evaluation. Um, so that means even getting IV, which in this case setting is home, does not allow them to like get the So recommendations. And um, so first one is, um, Manage order troponin in the clinic. Um, if you have a high enough suspicion to order a troponin, I probably need to get that done at the ER. Um, and so, um, yeah, I would say it's very rare that you get a troponin in the clinic, but definitely in this case, probably should have been drawn to the ER. And then acute onset heart failure, probably as well, just because we're worried about them having an MI and intervention like this gentleman did need a cath that day. Um, so getting that intervention quickly. Plus, you make illnesses in adults greater than 50 with dyspnea. Questions? Does the patient have a history of heart failure? So, if I guess my question for attendees maybe, if this was already diagnosed with heart failure and you give them an increased dose of Lasix, it seems like it'd be appropriate to treatment outcome. Yeah, that, that was not the case here, but that sounds right to me. I mean, because if it's a new onset, that's, what, that's the differentiation. I think that would be fair in my and clinically it'd be like what's the severity of the heart failure right? sure. yeah. severity of edema or grip yeah I think if they should get sent on like parts of my early six or just just nothing on oxygen. 97% O2 sets on room here. I'm curious the patient's heart score. Like, do they have a lot of infractions? Um, I do not remember it off the top of my head. 
but I don't think he didn't smoke. He, yeah, like I said, very healthy. I know prior CAD, I don't know about family history. It probably would have been moderate just because of his age. I have a question for the attending. That's all. <laughs> I, I, I see proponents ordered frequently from the clinic. What's your thoughts? Like, concerned enough you should send them to the ER or what's so much I've done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guilty too but I, I agree with what Dr. Wheeler said like if you have concern enough that you're going to order it you probably should send them to the ER but I've had the patient I have had discuss with them saying I think you should go and they go no okay. like, that discussion wasn't had in this case but yeah and that's when I'm like well I think it's better in your case. And now yeah. for my patient too, it came back high and they had a call, the same thing on. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Always try to document the conversation. Yeah, I think so. Let's I was just curious because yeah, I've had the same thing and like there's a time where I'm like, you know, if they go to the ER, they're going to have to wait for hours. And so maybe it's just, you know, if, if the proponent's negative, I'm really not concerned. But then it always is. And, <laughs> but you know, it'd be better to send them to the ER and just wait. I don't know. I've seen all of it. I, I situations uh, try to be judicious if you do order a troponin like finish your note before you leave the clinic so the night call person's not like hey this person's got a troponin elevated for no apparent reason make sure that you like explain what's going on was the troponin ordered stat or like routine uh i believe it was routine i think you can do stat they have to go to my question is already answered it's just about you answered about documentation if they had a conversation about it before you I actually have the the plan. I just need to see. Any other questions? For me, my takeaway was shortness of breath, new onset, do it like chest pain. Like, just don't forget that in the 70 Yep. Also, I think I read recently that, um, like older white ladies who've been on therapy for GERD and it's worsening, acutely worsening, yeah. on it, that's another suspicion for disease. I guess I'm just thinking myself in this situation, and I feel like if the vitals were all completely normal, and I, I probably would have like MI wouldn't be as high up on my list, you know. So I guess I'm just wondering, like, as a general rule, if there is a new onset, if there's no increased oxygen, does that mean we have to for evaluation? Like, I think it's the clinical picture, right? Yeah. So clearly, you're thinking cardiac. You have signs of heart failure. He didn't have heart failure before. What can cause heart failure? It's, yeah. I guess it goes to show like the most important cause of heart failure is ischemic cardiac disease. And so having a higher suspicion of that. Yeah. If he had come in with chest pain, it would have been a slam dunk. Yeah. But it's up to a third of them that have MIs do not present. And this is in fairness, too, he had the heart cath and didn't get any sense. So, yes, he has disease, yeah. but it's he not. It's 20% ejection. It's in our clinic with 20%. Yeah. Sure. But I mean, it's not like getting stents earlier would have saved his heart function. Yeah. 
introduced earlier. But. Thank you so much. Was uh, your admission for uh, a lady who uh, was sent in from the cancer center with neutropenic fever? So, this will be um, not a situation I'm familiar, and it may sound similar to what So, like I said, it was a uh, lady sent in, uh, had a known, I don't remember her primary, I believe it was uh, lymphoma. Uh, he was uh, receiving treatment for uh, and was the cancer center actually did a really good job of kind of managing her and outpatient and then sending along documentation of that when she came. Um, but she was diagnosed uh, with neutropenic fever and then sent to us. And then the complication here was uh, delay in antibiotic therapy. Uh, but this is a little bit of background. Uh, 39-year-old female, so cell follicular lymphoma, um, going chemotherapy, and then uh, eight days prior to her arrival, about five days prior, they had seen her in the office, and uh, I don't think they started treating her fever initially, but then in the workup, did realize that she had a neutropenia, um, and so initiated an infectious workup from the outpatient setting as well as um, some initial initial uh, IV antibiotics. Um, and I believe they saw her for two, maybe three days in the office with uh, antibiotic administration before she was directly admitted. Uh, more of her background. See, ANC was 0.2, so that's 200. And severe um, neutropenia is anything that's less than 500. So on the day of admission, um, we were called, we accepted her as a transfer. Uh, and this kind of goes through some of the workup, more workup she had as an outpatient. Uh, and so she hit the floor and uh, it was documented that you're doing, I think, virtual nursing assessments now on the floor to alleviate some of the burden due to staffing shortages. So you may have seen that they'll bring like iPads into the room and some virtual nurse will go through the history and then document that assessment. Um, so this was documented at uh, right before 4.15. Uh, and then the order for IV antibiotics was placed almost two hours later, um, right before 6.30. So if you don't realize 6.30, it's right around um, check out or handoff. And then the antibiotics were given uh, later at um, 28. So this was a delay in greater than four hours from 
IV antibiotic administration. Uh, so what? So then this goes through, like we talked about last month, um, there's been a known problem with direct admissions where um, we're called, they'll arrive, they sit on the floor and then we don't hear about them. Uh, what actually happened in this case, I think this was our sixth admission of the afternoon. So every intern was actually off doing an admission and I was um, seeing the other ones. One of the interns got a page to the pager asking for Tylenol for a patient. Um, I think they briefly looked at it um, and uh, proved it and then let me know um, when we were back in the report room right about six o'clock that they had received that page um, without really realizing that this was uh, you know, a new admission that hadn't been seen. Uh, and so this is a little more uh, of the assessment here, but I think, uh, again, she sat on the floor for, that page came right about 5.30, so that was about an hour before we were even notified that she was on the floor. I didn't know she was asking for Tylenol for her fever at that time. Uh, so by the time um, shift change had come right around that 530, uh, we started kind of going through her history um, and then realized, you know, antibiotics haven't been ordered. Um, she hasn't been seen or assessed. Uh, and I think we'll get to some of the data later. Uh, a lot of this data just shows that um, outcomes are too early receipt of antibiotics. Um, I will say that she did receive antibiotics at the outpatient setting, um, but I believe she was receiving IM Recephin. Um, so I don't know if any of these studies uh, actually show any links to um, whether or not I, there's a difference in IMP or IV antibiotics for the treatment. Uh, and then this just highlights that uh, ANC less than 500 puts them in the severe um, febrile um, This goes through some risk calculations for febrile neutropenia that are all on um, MD calc, um, MASC, uh, and the others you can plug in uh, again and then use these scores to kind of risk stratify them. Uh, this is a study you know, that showed timing to antibiotics less than 30 minutes. The lower mortality than those uh, greater than 30 minutes. Uh, this is just kind of some more data of the same. Uh, she actually got her antibiotics, was uh, worked up, had a pretty extensive infectious workup, um, and then did well and was discharged. So thankfully, there was no um, mortality or adverse effect, but I think it is a near miss and something that um, is a systemic problem direct admissions coming to the floor and the treating teams not being notified. Um, so to offset that problem, um, it's up to us to notify the floor, you think it's way in to let us know, does that, does that help at all? I mean, I don't know how we can, because a lot of times these admissions, like we got called in and they came like right oh, in nursing. Or they're going to. So, you're telling one team to try to hand off that information to another team, which is also not the best way to go about it. Yeah. Dr. Tischler, does this happen with the other hospitalist teams where they don't get notified about? 
It is. I, I was just going to say that same thing. I think it's worthwhile. And I think it's, they got better. And I think with the new nursing change, it's back to where it's happening again. Mm -hmm. And the, I think the oncology team has talked to the hospitals groups because they were upset too how many times that happens. And they don't want to send them through the ER with a neutropenic fever. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it is. It's just one of those that the nursing, it's a nursing shop. They call and say, hey, they hit the floor. I mean, it's, it's good, and I do that myself too. That I just keep an eye because I've had some times nurses just fall through, and so you gotta try to do that. But in the busyness of six admins, it's like it's that's ultimately not your job. It's the nurse's job to call. And I think too, I had added her to the list as an outpatient fin, and so I don't think it changed when she hit the floor. Whereas I believe if you don't add them to the list, then they may if they get. I think put in under one of our attendings, it may auto populate to our list. So I don't know if that's something that could have prevented for us to keep an eye on it. They have a chart inserted though. That's not going to be every transfer we get. I think in variance is great too, but I still have a list of five variances that I have <laughs> from last month because they're not a quick process. It's frustrating and I'd love to do it, but. <laughs> Having those safety safety huddles, so doing safety huddles. No, they're not. They've stopped doing them. Yeah, they don't come by anymore. I still go by the house supervisor's office fairly frequently, so they know me. Of course, yeah. I mean, I talk to them about this, and their only solution is file a variance. Does what? <laughs> I will say they, they do review those variances at the quality improvement meetings with Dr. Boris. So it does make a difference. They'll calculate how many variances they have, and they will change hospital policy based on the number of variances in certain categories. So it does make a difference. Yeah. And that's what the house supervisor told me. Like, you have to file a variance to make any type of systemic change. Like we can tell people all we want, but without it being documented. And that may be just something on our, our own end where it's like that's ultimately their responsibility. But if we have that where it's a patient that is septic or that's coming in, that's like, this is urgent. Usually with the transfer center, more often than not, they give you a room number and that's the correct room number. And so I just make comments about, we should be notified, but all the floor time and time we expect them. But in the midst of five other admissions, it's a little different. When they, um, when they call you, you don't have to. They don't necessarily have to pay it. You have to approve Correct. first. Right. Right. That's, that's why I said more sometimes often than. Yeah, that's why well, I said more often than not. What you can do is you can tell them to call me back once you get a bed option. That they they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll pay you back if you tell them. To do but when you have a bunch of things going on, it's hard. Yeah, that's for the page back, and then they would take you and give you a room number, and then right. you would then call, you can call the nurse, nurse staff, yeah. or and then. Ask them to notify. Oh, good heavens. Let's do three more steps. For yeah, it's unfortunate. Well, job. <laughs> usually, page the, <laughs> uh, usually page the intern feature when patients hit the floor. Uh, no, they, they, they usually page They didn't even. It's one under thing gets access to. Just an hour after they arrived to the floor, they said, Can we get some Tylenol to treat this? Week? I think the book serve. I was on that night. I see your book serve uh, at 10 o'clock. So that was six hours after. That's an ideal thing. Who, who assigns that nurse to go do an intake? Because it's like, if they can let a nurse know that a patient's there, like, why can't they let the 
that's a nursing workflow thing and it depends on how many discharges they have and how many patients each nurse have during the day decided by the charge nurse. Yeah, all you have to be at a virtual email. Yeah, we should, uh, we should teach all of our interns to be very successful. John, did you have a question? Yeah. Oh, the variance right now. Through one. All right, thank you. So much. <laughs> <laughs> so really quick, like two minute bathroom break, and then Dr. Tish will come.